Hello and thank you for downloading the Reading Room podcast. This is Room 13. On this edition of the programme, the Reading Room went to the cinema recently and we went to see the film One Day. The fans of the book are so possessive of her, and rightly so, and I understand that if I wasn't playing her, I'd probably be very possessive over her. Uh, it's one of my favourite books over the last years, uh, One Day by David Nichols, and uh, what we've done is reviewed the book and the film all in one uh, tidy little package for you. We'll also be talking to the actress and writer Abigail Tartellin about her first novel, Flick. I think it was always just meant to be what it was, and when we sent it out to publishers, there was a massive amount of interest. And our tea break story comes from Jim Gotts. He stretched out his legs in front of him and stood at his feet for a moment. Let me ask you something, he said. Do you trust your wife? Claire Kinton reads the explosive first chapter of her book, Dead Game. And we find out how the bookpond.com helps students swap academic books. And we're also going to be launching a new feature on the programme. Jamie Mackay will be giving us the musings of a muddled mind. All this plus more 101 books to read before you die. So enjoy the podcast and I'll see you at the end. This is Karen Maitland and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Uh, now, recently, we met the uh, author and actress Abigail Tartellin, and this is what happened. You're listening to The Reading Room, and I'm thrilled to be joined by novelist, screenwriter, actress, and occasional skateboarder, Abigail Tartellin, whose, Hello. Fir- Hello, whose first novel, <laughs> Flick, has been published by Beautiful Books, and GQ magazine have said that Flick could well become a cult classic. Abigail, welcome to the programme. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, so, Abigail, who is Flick? Flick is a 15-year-old guy from the northeast of England. He's witty, he's sexy, he's, he's really, really funny and clever, but there's just no education or jobs where he grows up. So there's, there's nothing really much to do, and he's getting to the age of 15 and realising that, hey, I might not be a superhero or a movie star or anything particularly awesome when I grow up. And it's about kind of fate and if your choices can affect your destiny or if where you're born makes your fate. And um, Flick meets this girl who thinks that they can choose their own fate. Obviously from a male perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, so everybody picks up on that. Everyone, whenever I'm talking to anybody about the book, they always say, oh, it's interesting, you wrote from, you know, you wrote from a male perspective. I don't know, it just came quite naturally. I mean, obviously, a lot of books and films and TV shows are from a male perspective, and I don't think, you know, there has to be a male or female perspective. I think it flicks just a human being, and I think it could have worked pretty much just as well for a girl. You know, there are are some things, like, he has peer pressure and, um, well, this is such a lame phrase, but there's, there's kind of violence going on, and there's his relationship with drugs maybe quite um, male because of the whole the whole dealing aspect. But I'm sure there are girls that have gone through the same thing. So I see. I mean, so does this reflect... How much of your childhood does, does this reflect? It is like... It is very much like my childhood in some ways. I mean, my friends reading it... I've not had that many of my friends who I've gone to school with read it because there were a really close group of us and we're quite small. But all of them that have read it have said, oh, my God, this is so you, this is so us. This is just like reading back on our school days. But, I mean, the specifics, obviously I've set it somewhere else, and that was because I wanted to, not disguise, but just maybe distance from, you know, certain people and certain things. Um, so I set it in an area that I spent some time in. And, I mean, the dr- I, you know, was never heavily involved in drugs, like Flick was. <laughs> so that was kind of made up, but it was made up from... I, I mean, I've just spent a lot of time recently in California, and I'd, I'd spent a lot of time with kids who were skaters, and it was from experiences like that, just spending time with certain people, that, that aspects of the book were formed. But, yeah, it's very much linked to my, 
my childhood and my experience of school, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say it's very refreshing in its use of of language and uh, the, the language it uses is, is, is that language it's not the, the Hollyoaks glossed over TV language of, of uh, young adult teenage life yeah. it's, it's the real uh, you know it's, it's the real deal and also about sex and drugs as well uh, and I found that very refreshing I mean do, is that something you were conscious of very conscious of getting right yes it was I mean when I wrote the book I think I wasn't thinking about anything particularly consciously because I wasn't thinking oh I'm writing a book to deliver to an audience but when the book came out of you know the the words came out on the, onto the page they all are very much kind of in line with my agendas and I um, wanted to write a book for kids that represented their real lives, that didn't sugarcoat anything or wasn't fantasy because I'm, I like fantasy films but I find it hard to sit through fantasy books because I don't have any empathy with the characters and I don't feel that their lives connect to mine and I wanted something for kids when they were growing up and especially young guys who don't have that many books that talk about their lives and young men don't read that much I mean in general it's a stereotype but I think it's quite true but I think it's because mainstream literature disenfranchises them by being about fantasy and being about boys who are really sweet and you know and really innocent and think about girls solely in a romantic way whereas that's just not real exactly you men just just don't think like that now I think it's safe to say we don't want to give give, uh, give any of the plot away, but there's one chapter in there which is very much about offering advice to teenagers with, with regards to exams. It's very, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, very, it's very direct. I mean, they always say, write about what you know. Is this, yeah. you know, the, the more mature Abigail saying this is the advice to, to teenagers? Yeah, teenagers should take that advice. I put that in the book, and I actually fought for that. We had a little bit of a discussion with... I mean, obviously, you go through editing, and with my agents and my publishers, they said, well, maybe that chapter's a bit too direct. It sounds a bit too much like you and I fought for that because I I think it's a really sound piece of advice and I think people should take it. I did 12 GCSEs there was no option to not do 12 GCSEs Um, but that meant that I was kind of doing 14 or 15 subjects because you know you do two subjects within one GCSE and you have homework for all of them and I didn't ever feel that it was particularly hard but what I did feel was that I was up till 4am and it was really really tiring and as a creative person and as somebody who goes about and and does their own thing no matter what other people are telling them to do I think it it would probably be better for kids to have the time in the evening to not do homework and to sort of take responsibility for their own hours and um and fill them with something cool that they really like and that that may well progress their lives just as much as schoolwork that's the enemy and we'll live and die in these towns uh, and inside the front of abigail tartellin's book flick uh, it says for all the young dudes this story should be read while playing we'll live and die in these towns by the enemy so i asked her what that meant I was just listening to that to that album, I think, while I was writing the book, and there are some lyrics from the album within the book. And I did think it sort of captured Flick in terms of being a little bit punk. They're a little bit raw. They remind me of 70s punk bands. They remind me of a young jam, certainly. But let, let's just dig into the writing process itself. I mean, this uh, do, when you sit down and write, does it does it absolutely flow from you? Do you start with post-it notes stuck to a, to a wall? What, what, what happens? Where do you write? Um, writing Flick was 
a very unique experience in a way. I writing's a compulsion for me. It's not something that I set out to be immediately. I thought that maybe when I was older I would write a book when I had something to say. And then I realized that I had something to say about being 15 because I was 19 when I started writing it. And then I knew 15 and I had objectivity on it as well. It just sort of came out one summer, half of the book, and I just put pen to paper and had the had the compulsion to write. So I wrote half the book and then over the next two years I thought about it sometimes but I was doing acting and other things and I write short stories, I write bits and bobs down all the time. And then one night I woke up and I knew how to structure the book and um, it's split into five parts and each of those parts are split into really short chapters and the structure fits in with the idea that I want young guys to read this book. People who generally don't read, people who might have quite a short attention span for reading, I want people to, every two pages, think, yes, I did a chapter. So um, I woke up and I realised that's how I needed to structure it and I just had a week free, so I spent the entire week in the living room writing, not eating much, and not sleeping much, and just I'd sleep, get up, write, then go to bed, get up, write, and I finished the book in a week, and that's the version that I sent out to agents, and then we did one more full edit, and then one more edit for just spell checks and things like that. I think it was always just meant to be what it was, and when we sent it out to publishers, there was a a massive amount of interest from really big publishers, and what happens when you sell a book, you either just sell it to one publisher or there's an auction and and people bid more money for it and I think that a lot a lot of them came back and said wow I loved this book but it just wasn't sort of right from marketing there's you know there's there's some sex in it there's some swearing and but also people came back and said it's not a a plot heavy book there's a plot in there but it's it's about this character and this this time and this feeling and growing up that's kind of my my teenage years for me just wrapped up in a book certainly and when you say wrapped up the cover is is i, I think it's phenomenal it reminds me very much of um, a new order style 12 inch sleeve from from the 80s you know it's uh, mm. it's different it sticks out um i mean you're beautiful books are the publishers aren't they i mean they are. so yeah. is it was this their idea did they set it up where did this where did this cover come um, from well we we discussed the cover and it's sort of the cover was always going to be something a little bit different and they found a designer called Emma Noble who I think she was in her last year at art college in Chelsea at that time and they met her in Paris on the Boulevard de Clichy I think and she was partying and she just she seemed really cool and she designed the cover and it looks absolutely fantastic I love the expanse of black and then um there was originally there there wasn't a quotation in the in the centre of the cover but Waterstone suggested we have something on the book that said it was a novel. Okay so big question now what's next what what are you working on now? I am working on a feature film with a producing partner which is called Buddy Movie. At the moment it's quite an exciting time because we've finished the feature film script we've shot a trailer that will be online soon and we actually have some quite big people involved with producing it so that's really exciting and that's at um, www.indiegogo.com slash buddymovie and then I'm writing a second novel as well which is called The Martyr. Um, I'm just working on the first edit so the first draft is done and my agent really likes it and um, we'll see how that goes. 
And for more information about Abigail Tartellin and her book flick, uh, go to abigailtartellin.com where you'll find links to Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and of course, that link is available from our website, readingroom.podbean.com. And uh, Abigail's going to be featuring uh, certainly on the next programme because the Reading Room book group will be reviewing flick uh, on next month's programme. So tune in on the 2nd of October to find out what we thought. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, like a lot of writers, I belong to a writer's circle. Now, these days, because we're so busy knocking this programme into shape, I don't get so much time uh, to put pen to paper or even fingers to the plastic keys. But I always go and lend my support to the group. Uh, well, I say it's a group, there's, there's three of us and we call it a writer's triangle. But I still get a chance to engage in the writing process with others, which is just absolutely fantastic. Now, Jim from our group read a story three or four months ago that was simple, yet brilliant, and it really stuck with me. So this month for our tea break story, we present Who Would Have Thought by Jim Gotts and read by John Welsh. The metallic voice boomed out from the tano above our heads, where we sat on the long wooden bench at the rear of the platform next to the waiting room. I wish they'd turn the volume down, I said. It's uncivilised this time in the morning. Richard folded his newspaper and turned to me with a grin. You wait till you're on the train, he said. You'll spend the whole journey listening to them telling you all about the delicious sandwiches they've got in the buffet car. I could do with a drink, I said. They'll be open by the time we get to London. It might take my mind off it all. Richard chuckled. Fat chance. You're forgetting who's in charge, he said, indicating our two wives standing on the edge of the platform. Stop moaning. You're in for a long, happy day, looking interested in what they're trying on and humping bags. You do have some great ideas, I said. Why did I let you talk me into it? Because you secretly agreed with me when I said it was about time the girls had a treat. And what could be more of a treat than a day out shopping? Especially when they're spending our plastic. After today, you'll get no nagging for weeks. See if I'm not right. All it takes is one small sacrifice and you're suddenly a hero. You mark my words. She'll be encouraging you to go to the pub before long. So you're trying to earn some gold stars, I said. I like a quiet life, Richard replied. There's a lot to be said for peace and harmony in the household. In fact, there's everything to be said for it. I go to a lot of trouble to keep it like that. He stretched out his legs in front of him and stood at his feet for a moment. Let me ask you something, he said. Do you trust your wife? Absolutely, I said. I mean, really trust her. Of course. She watches what she spends on the credit cards. She doesn't mess around with other men, as far as I know, and she wouldn't invite her mother over unless she warned me first. That's not what I'm getting at, said Richard. Are you certain she would never harm you? Well, I haven't come across any powdered glass in my mashed potato yet, and I didn't see any roller skates on the stairs. He waved a dismissive hand. I'm not saying she would make plans to do you an injury. I'm talking about something else. It's hard to explain. He fell silent, and I thought he might have finished what he had been saying, but after a short pause he went on. A few weeks ago I was in the kitchen with my wife. I was washing my hands at the sink, and she was chopping carrots on the draining board for dinner. 
I made some innocent remark about if I ate many more carrots, I would turn orange. And she suddenly went mad, just lost it. I'm not kidding, she was almost foaming at the mouth, calling me an ungrateful, selfish so-and-so. And she was doing her best and never got any thanks, that sort of thing. Yelling at the top of her voice, and all the time with this big knife in her hand, waving it around at me. I really thought she was going to stick me with it. He fumbled for a pack of cigarettes and lit one, inhaling deeply. There were beads of sweat on his upper lip. I kept quiet, waiting to see if he would carry on, but he remained silent. Eventually, I said, What did you do? I didn't do anything. I was gobsmacked and really scared, I can tell you. She calmed down, of course, and said she was sorry. She'd had a bad day, but it shook me all the same. I smiled at him. Well, at least she apologised, didn't she? He turned and stared at me. That's not the point. I'm telling you that for a second. I thought she really was going to stab me. She was out of control, in a frenzy. What if she'd actually done it? Calming down afterwards wouldn't have done much good, would it? But your wife's not like that. She couldn't hurt you. She loves you. You've been married for 20 years. I suppose you're right. But it's made me think all the same. I mean, she might not be able to help herself. Sure, she would probably regret it, but that would be no consolation. Richard glanced up and down the platform as if to see whether anyone was listening. She's always been a bit volatile, he said in a low voice. You know, unpredictable. It was one of those things that I found attractive about her. What if one of these days she gets herself into a rage over something and doesn't calm down? The house is full of things she could use. She could hit me with a pan or a bottle. There's always a knife lying around, for one reason or another. I just wonder if I haven't been living with a ticking bomb all these years. I tell you, any time I see a big sharp knife in her hand, I'm going to make sure there's some furniture between us. I was becoming uncomfortable with the way the conversation was going. But I still can't think why you believe she would suddenly take it into her head to do you an injury, I said. She's had plenty of opportunity these last twenty years, and you're still alive. He thought for a moment. That's the thing, isn't it? he replied. There's a fine line between having an impulse and actually giving way to it. I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself, I'll kill him when somebody's upset you and made you really angry? Quite a few, if I'm honest, I said grudgingly. And how many times have you actually killed anybody? Don't be silly, I never have. Exactly, he responded with a downward chop of his hand. Like you, most of us seem to have something in our brains that stops us crossing the line between having crazy urges and carrying them out. And you're hoping that your wife's brain is put together like those the rest of us have got. It must be, or I might not be here talking to you. Then what are you getting so worked up about, I said impatiently. He hesitated before answering. What do you think would be the result if the part of her brain that prevents her from doing stupid and dangerous things suddenly stops working? It could happen any time. Tomorrow, next month, in a year. I know I sound irrational. I don't even know what I'm talking about will turn out to be twaddle, let alone being able to forecast when she might turn into a homicidal maniac. I'm only saying that I've realised I'm more vulnerable than I thought I was. What's the solution, then, I said, in an attempt to humour him? Walk around in a suit of armour? 
don't try to be funny, he snapped back. This is serious. There is very little I can do. I mean, how can I take precautions against something that probably will never happen? I gave a shrug and said, that's the sort of question that will drive you mad if you think about it too long. There was no response, so I persisted. What are you going to do? I asked him. I'll do what I can, which isn't much, he eventually replied. All I know is that I have to keep my wits about me and do my best to keep the peace. That way I'll have a fighting chance of making it through to retirement. He gave a weak grin. I know what you're thinking. It's no way to carry on when I get nervous every time I come within ten feet of my wife. But there it is. I'm only trying to avoid trouble. I hate nasty surprises. The tannoy above our heads gave a loud screech and crackled into life. Out of the corner of my eye I could see our two wives standing on the platform where the train would come to a halt. They had heard the announcement and beckoned to us to come over and join them. Come on, Richard, I said, pulling at his sleeve. It's time to go. It's OK. You go ahead, he said. I'll stay here and wait. Wait for what? For the train to come to a standstill. I'll come when it stopped moving. I began to feel irritated. What's the matter now, I said. You're not trying to tell me you think she might push you under the train. It's unlikely, he said. But you never know. Why take a chance when you don't have to? I decided... I had had enough. He looked peaceful and contented, sitting in the sun, so I left him there and walked over to join the women. The rails were groaning a metallic rhythm under the weight of the approaching train, and leaning over, I could see down the track to the engine and carriages in the distance, the silhouettes growing ever larger as they neared the station. I became aware of my wife standing directly behind me, and I decided to move a few feet to the right away from the edge of the platform. After all, why take chances? Cleary, you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Now it's time for The Reading Room Book Group and we're going to be discussing uh, the novel One Day by David Nichols and also the film because we ventured over the water recently, put our life savings into a ticket uh, to see the film One Day starring Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis. But first off, we're going to go back to Room 2 pretty much over a year ago now and this is an edited down version of my waffle about one day and uh, and certainly the feelings i had around the book we've edited out me slagging off Coldplay, but please note i do still stand by those opinions i've read two books since i read the last page of what is without doubt the best book i've read in years i feel sorry for those books they were never going to come up to the mark they were read on the rebound and never going to be enjoyed to their full potential i should perhaps write to their authors and apologize They were, however, part of the process of me getting over the beautifully crafted, funny, clever, witty and indeed gorgeous characters that became such an integral part of my life over the 435 pages of David Nichols' wonderful novel, One Day. This book, for me, is British. 
It covers two principal characters on the same day, St. Swithin's Day, for 20 years. It paints the background in light shades so we get a subtle reminder of what was happening in the country at the time, providing a great notion of how times have changed. The reviews that appear on goodreads.com seem to suggest that most people love this book, and those that don't are American. So, like real ale, it doesn't travel well, which in my opinion is good. It shouldn't have to. So please do go out and buy a copy of One Day by David Nichols, but don't tell anyone about it. I want this one to feel like it's mine. I want my period of mourning, and above all, I want to read it again in a few years' time when I've forgotten all about it and I can step on the same emotional roller coaster all over again. Now, my feelings are still exactly the same uh, towards that book, but I think it's worth noting that when we came to World Book Night, what, what was the book that we started to give away? Um, because I think at that point we knew it wasn't going to be an underground uh, <laughs> success. Now it's time to bring in Jill Hart uh, from the High Street branch of the Waterstones. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Paul. Let's look at the, certainly first at the cover. Uh, now, you've got one of the, the first editions, have, haven't you? I have. And it, it's, it's the same cover as mine, but it just looks better because it's in hardback and it feels better. Yes, this came into um, probably eroticas in those days, weren't we? As a, a new book, and I think we got three copies. They weren't expecting huge things of it, were they, at the time, no, two wow. years ago? And I bought one, my colleague bought one, and I'm not quite sure who bought the other one, but it sat there and it looked totally different to everything else at the time because it's um, we all know what the orange and the jacket looks like, yeah. but it didn't have a paper cover around it. It was this slightly sort of matte looking, very different at the time. A lot of books do that now, but at the time it was one of the first ones to do it and it just looked different. Yeah, now quite controversially, I don't like the cover. Uh, I'm looking for, I'm, I might buy a new copy of the, of the, of the film version, just, you know, <laughs> just because, I, yeah, it's size. But I, obviously, I, it's, yeah. it's, 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 like you say, it's quite a thing. Let's have a quick look at the uh, synopsis on the back, just for the, anyone who's been living under a rock. Uh, on the 15th of July, 1988, Emma and Dexter meet on the night of their graduation. Tomorrow, they must go their separate ways. So where will they be on this one day next year and the year after that and every year that follows? Uh, and that's re- that really sums up the book. Now, Jonathan Coe, on the back of the copy I've got, which is different to the one you've got, but uh, the author Jonathan Coe I really really like he says you put the book down with the hallucinatory feeling that you, they've become as well known to you as your closest friends now I couldn't sum this book up better because that was the, the point of the, uh, the the piece we played earlier my feeling of loss when I put this book down was gosh I'm never going to you know meet these people again it was, it was such a shame what about you? I think so too I mean it, his writing style is so deceptively simple and yet he draws you in into a highly emotional state straight away. And he does that through developing the characters to a degree where, as you say, you feel you know them inside out. Emma's lack of belief in herself and her lack of self-confidence is excruciating. And this goes all the way through the book. And you really feel for her. And Dexter's shallowness, he's um, very shallow, very inept at life. But he knows it, and it's the fact that he knows this. It, it, even in a character that's quite unattractive, he can dr- he somehow he draws those characters to a way that you really feel for them. Yeah, yeah I'd, he's I'd, very very skilled. I'd heard reviews of the book that said that people were uh, some people were struggling to. Uh, enjoy and couldn't understand why people fell in love with the character of Dexter and certainly why Emma would stay with Dexter or, or, or stay yeah. with him or even be friends <laughs> with him um, but I identify yes. completely with Dexter and yes. his struggle to grow up and uh, settle down and uh, you know his ambition to, to, to want to be a youth TV presenter uh, I, I completely identify with it it's certainly. their lack of it's their, their very humanness in their faults and foibles that make it so good I think yeah, no. and then you've got his dry the dry witty knowing humour and all the little lines that he puts in but all the humour is 
things that they say against themselves. The humour isn't against anybody else. Their humour is dry, witty humour against their own characters as they're speaking, the characters. And it just was very, very, very gripping. OK, so let's talk about the book uh, and, and its its progression. You say you received three copies of the, did, of, the, yes. of the book when it first came mm-hmm. out. So, you, like you say, they weren't particularly expecting big things. What happened from there is it's been an absolute runaway success. Is the, Has the success of this book been by word of mouth or is it more than that, do you think? I think it started off as word of mouth and it went from there very quickly to getting picked up by reading groups. And it just it just ran away with itself, which is amazing, really. Why one book does that and another doesn't is hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, there's no key formula in this. I think it's just uh, the, the word of mouth, obviously, mm. uh, spoken volumes because the characters are so well written. Uh, now, there's a quote in here. You were, you were referring to me earlier on, Jill, weren't you? This is one of your favourite quotes. The Dickens, yes, the at Dickens. the beginning, yeah. which drew me in at the beginning, I have to say. The whole point about the book being about one day is that everybody's life changes from one year to the next and how small incidents have such huge impact on it. And that is one of the thing that came over to me most at the end of the book, It that you know, life is short, you're, you, what you're worried about one year, you're not worried about the next. And that's summed up in one of my favourite quotes by Dickens, who says, that was a memorable day to me, for it made great changes in me. But it's the same with any life. Imagine one day selected out of it and think how different its course would have been. Pause, you who read this, and think for a long moment of the long chain of iron or gold, of thorns or flowers, that would never have bound you, but for the formation of that first link on that one memorable day. And I think that sums up this book amazingly. In a nutshell, yeah, yeah. yeah. You see, now, last month I think we were talking about quotes in books. We were. And, uh, I'm not a big fan of them. This might be the thing to turn me around and yeah. start looking and doing more research. And when I, because I just flick past those quotes at the beginning of books, really. Well, that gives I, me, it makes the hairs on my neck stand up. I think that's yeah. that's marvellous, you know. Yeah, yeah, I just, I failed to connect with it. Now we're going to bring in uh, Cathy, our regular email reviewer. Um, and she says, I love this book. I found myself drawn in by the characters and captivated by their lives. This book managed to make me laugh and cry as it went through 20 years of Emma and Dexter's friendship and she was totally absorbed by the story and cared about what happened to the characters and then she talks about the ending now obviously we've got we've got a yellow card scenario in the uh, uh, in the studio here uh, which is you know we're not going to talk about the ending uh, here you know one day there will be a time maybe this time next year when we think enough people have talked about it and how and then we can discuss the ending at length because a lot of people do uh, have different different uh, opinions about it but we are not going to touch it uh, with a barge pole now we're going to leave the book there shortly now we, we're thinking about the uh, the film we went to see the film and we're going to talk about that film right now and uh, first off we're going to play uh, a, a clip and uh, this is when the two characters emma and dexter are just meeting you know we've never actually met Actually, we have. Several times. Oh, have we? And Gate crashed my birthday party, called me Julie, and spilt red wine down my top. Ouch. Well, I'm sorry about that. No, not at all. You were delightful. No, was I? No. No, you weren't. <laughs> Look, uh, if you're not Julie, then... I'm Emma. Emma. Emma Morley. Emma Morley. Oh, listen, I'll, I'll walk you on. So there we have the, the the three different dialects that Anne Hathaway chose to uh, to use here. Now, what what did you think of the accent, Jill? Let's get this out. Of the oh, way. she should just not, she should just try to an English accent. I think it's not spoilt the film for a lot of people, but I think it's putting a big barrier to people enjoying the film. Yeah, certainly, it's a talking point. And to take on a character like Emma Morley in the first place, she knew, she knew was difficult. And like in the book, they don't spend time in Yorkshire in the film, so 
it wasn't necessary for yeah. her to be Yorkshire. It was a waste of time. She was she was clearly competent at doing a generic English accent, which she should have just <laughs> uh, taken. You know, and it was it was quite good. Although uh, I did I did listen to one review that someone emailed in and said, "Well, actually, my mum talks like that." <laughs> I'm fine, you know, it, it identifies with one person. Uh, okay, now we're going to go to uh, so, so some interviews with the uh, the actors uh, Anne Hathaway first. Then you'll hear from Jim Sturgis with the book. At the end of it, you feel like as though you've you've lived alongside these people. And I thought with the movie, you know, it would be it would feel more like a, a a photo album that you would look through, where you could see someone one way at the beginning, and then at the end, they're very different and piece together the story of how they got there. And that was going to be our job was piecing it together. You can really dip into these people's lives and sort of just catch up with where they're at. You know, for twenty for a whole span of twenty years, I and mean, it's quite rare you get to see every year for 20 years in somebody's life and just the scope that you know what people actually go through and how they change and the different you know situations and relationships and points of views and perspective on life you know changes as as, a, as the story sort of goes along and the hairstyles <laughs> change a lot too i don't know that emma created in me a greater sense of empathy than i than I normally have. Um, the thing that was different about her was she wasn't just mine. I mean, she is... She, the, the fans of the book are so possessive of her, and rightly so, and I understand that if I wasn't playing her, I'd probably be very possessive over her. It helps that the characters are themselves so, so enjoyable. I mean, Dex is so frustrating, and Emma's so admirable. I think that was the sort of biggest challenge, was to keep the sort of essence of Dexter and his sort of... Because he's a great character, you know? People sort of fell in love with him from the book. And he's a real, you know, he's a real character. So not losing any of that, but at the same time, just making sure that he wasn't just coming off as an obnoxious, you know, idiot all of the time. And at that point, I'd like to bring in our producer, Johnny, because, Johnny, you've not read the book, have you? But you, we went to see the film the other night, and the, pretty much the first thing you said to me was that, I don't know, you, you were talking about the character of Dexter. Yeah, yeah, I, I did have a problem with, you know, understanding what Emma saw in Dexter. You know, he, he, he did come across as a bit of an idiot to me. And um, I know that's difficult in film. I did see a, an interview with David Nichols, because, of course, he, he wrote the screenplay as well. Yeah. And he mentioned that, you know, in, in a book, you can voice the thoughts of the characters. So you can have Dexter saying... What, how he feels and maybe explaining why he's behaved the way he has. In a film, you can't do that. You're relying on the actors to try and get that across with a, just a, a look. But, um, you know, having not read the book, in, in spite of you endlessly banging on about how great <laughs> it is, and I will read it, I will read it. I, having watched the film, I mean, maybe this is the, the best recommendation. Having watched the film, I will read the book now. Yeah. Now, actually, I mean, interesting you say that, because one of the things I'd written down on my sheet today, talking about the differences between books and films, is once you've produced a film, even if you've not seen the film, but you've seen the poster or the trailer, and you know Anne Hathaway now is going to be playing Emma Morley, she's now your Emma, I suppose. I mean, when you read that book, do you think you'll be picturing her, or do you think you'll be able to successfully uh, create another character in your mind? Oh no, absolutely! It'll be, it'll be Anne Hathaway now. Yeah, and uh, I mean the film was very successful in that in that sense that it made her a very attractive character, and you know you you, you couldn't help kind of fall in love with her a bit yourself. Yeah. Uh, so you could see what Dexter saw Dexter, in her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what you don't get in the film is how much she sees herself as desperately unattractive. That doesn't come across. There was a very big part of the book. She saw herself as extremely unattractive. Obviously, everybody around her didn't, but uh, mm. that was something I think that 
when you've got such an attractive actress playing the role, that's maybe yeah. changed it a bit. Yeah, yeah, and she, I mean, she certainly, she's, she is a very, very good actress. There's no, there's no doubt in that. I mean, let's let's leave the accent sort of to one side. I mean, for me, this this would have been a because it was directed by the same person that did an education. Now, for me, Carrie Mulligan would have been my first choice of <laughs> of, of Emma Morley, but you know, I suppose they wanted to, to to steer away from that. But they were perhaps trying to sell it to the American market. And what I referred to when we were talking about the book earlier is that it, it's not travel well. I don't think the book has, mm. hasn't particularly, uh, you know, it's done well in America, but certainly not the success it's had here. Uh, and the film certainly has done the same sort of thing as well. It's not been so successful. Now, Anne Hathaway, I believe, was cast in this role purely to, to, to get the Americans very in, I, I would say. So the, the success of that, I don't know, this this may be a slow burn classic as well. You know, maybe when uh, once, once DVDs come out and things like that in America, maybe they'll pick up on it. But do you think there's something English about this this story and this setting? I think there's something Scottish about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it. I thought it portrayed Scotland and Edinburgh on the movie. Certainly, it came out. Edinburgh was a big character, and it came over. Really yeah. Well. Now, one thing you mentioned to me was the, one things I didn't like a was character. It really, mm, you felt was a character missing. Arthur's Seat, which right through the book they go to Arthur's Seat on their first date. That's not giving anything away, and Arthur's Seat remains a big feature throughout the book it's a big feature of edinburgh it's a huge iconic feature and at the end of the book and in the film rather they didn't use it and i was quite i was very disappointed first thing you said to me where's all the seat yes and i'm sure that's probably something to do with um not being able to film on a a national site or something like that but um, my other problem was um I, i thought they struggled to age him i thought they struggled with his aging process what, with wigs and things like that, did you not believe? You know that, that it was a twenty-year period. Over? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought she did well. I thought they did her well, but I, I thought it was the aging of him at the end, sort of twenty years. He, he struggled to age twenty years. I understand. What, I understand yeah. what you're saying there. Now it's probably uh, worth talking as well about uh, the Rafe Spall who played Ian, the boyfriend. Uh, now he. Some people have said he he sort of stole the show, and I, I can see that. I, I he really was very can. good. He was a brilliant, uh, a brilliant point, but he's actually a very, very good character. Yes. You know, he's, he's there to, to to play off against. And uh, one of the other things that was uh, that I only only just realised was missing was Emma's affair. She had an affair with uh, with the headmaster as yes. well, and that was a you know I suppose again it comes down to condensing what is a book into a film. Mm. And I think one of the main problems that I had with it, or the main problem, was that you actually lost, I think, in the movie, the concept of one day and how much things changed from one year to the next. In the book, you finish one chapter desperately wanting to know what they do the next morning, and then you've gone on to a completely different scenario, and it's the, the anachronistic bit of that that makes it such a an interesting and unusual book and that was something they couldn't do couldn't do i feel on a movie because a movie screen you haven't got gaps to f- of thought you have to just move straight from one scene into the next yeah. and i didn't think it was always apparent that a year had gone by in between each scene no, no and something you've mentioned to as well mm. is, is uh, about emma's personality and the why why emma uh, people fall in love with emma morley uh, and johnny hit on you know the fact that now they've used uh, an actress you know a very good looking mm. actress for uh, to help that scenario visually uh, but there were parts of her personality uh, that, that you felt and there were some there were some quotes and things like that that uh, uh, you wanted to yes I felt the other thing that was missing for me was the amount of humor that David Nichols writes in the book and just the wry one-liners they, they they put in when Emma's working in the Tex-Mex 
and making all these horrendous Mexican dishes. She talks about um, industrial cheese set solid like plastic and it actually turns your stomach when you read it, some of it, some of those things. Um, She's worried that her love of the written word is really just a fetish for stationery. Which we all all have. Which we all have. And it's those little things that, that... are like all our little internal thoughts that come out that are very good. Dexter's girlfriend, Suki, who is just as horrendous as he is attempting to be at the time, the description of her by David Nichols is that she uh, fizzes and bubbles like a fan heater dropped into a bath. And I think, that's just, I think it's those just wonderful one lines that made the book for me as well that, again, added a, leng- a level of humour that you couldn't do in a film moving at that pace. Yeah, it was, there were some laughs in it though, weren't yes. there? I would say, I mean, yes. uh, yeah, there was, uh, the cinema we were in, I think it, was, it sounded like it was well received. Yes, um, I think it's a very, very good rom-com girly movie is what it's made of it, but it's, it's not quite the same product as the book was. Okay. Uh, I well, think. well, let's go. Let's go round the table here. Have a quick yes and no for the book. Obviously, we're all going to say yes. Johnny's not read the book. Uh, he's uh, <laughs> yet again scorned uh, Marshall for that. So obviously, it's a yes for that. Yes. Uh, are you going to recommend the film, Jill? I think if you've read the book and you want to see it, that's fine. I think if you want to just watch it as a girly movie, that's fine. Girly movie. I enjoyed this. I mean, that's not. What are you saying, <laughs> no. Jill? Uh, I'm going to recommend it. I'm yes. going to say an absolute yes, yes, whether you've read it or not. Um, I think I think a lot of people will be going there for the curiosity. And I don't think people will be as disappointed as they think no, they will be. No. Um, uh, and if you've not read the book, because uh, a lot of people don't read, <laughs> then, uh, yeah, by all means, uh, go, go to the cinema now. If it makes one or two people, as you said, Johnny, turn to the book, then that's great. Exactly. Now, And Johnny will be reading this. Now, next month, the Reading Room Book Group, we're going to be reviewing Flick by Abigail Tartelli, who you heard earlier on in the programme. Uh, now, also, um, I'm reading at the moment, we've got a preview copy of Mark Kermo's new book, The Good, The Bad and The Multiplex. And uh, how was your trip to the cinema, Jill? Did you enjoy the cinematic experience? I did. And, uh, you... I liked the th- cinema. Okay. I like the bit where the screen goes wide and it's that sort of little <laughs> thrill of excitement. It did. I, I heard an audible gasp from next to me. And uh, what Mark's, uh, Mark's uh, problem is, is really the dehumanisation of, of really what is happening to most industries, but, to, but certainly the cinematic industry. So we'll be speaking to Mark this week and he will be appearing on next month's programme. Uh, now, we're launching a, a new audio blog feature here on The Reading Room, and the title speaks for itself. So now our good friend and colleague, Jamie Mackay, presents Musings of a muddled mind. The difference between men and women packing for a holiday. Women. Make a list on both sides of A4 lined paper listing everything to be packed. Often not just a long list, but a list with a contents page, footnotes and an index at the back. Also with subheadings, cross-referencing and including items of clothing for every possible weather type and scenario. E.g. coats to wear in case of locust plague, ropes in case of tornado or demon invasion, shoes for walking, shoes for sitting... Shoes for cobbles, shoes for bobbles, shoes for wibbles and for wobbles. Jewellery for the day, jewellery for the night. Jewellery for 2.36pm on a Tuesday. Jewellery in case you meet the Queen. Jewellery in case you don't meet the Queen. Clothes for wearing in the car. Clothes for the airport check-in. Clothes for the bit after the airport check-in. Clothes for the plane in case of turbulence, snow, drizzle or all three. Clothes to wear whilst waiting for the baggage carousel and clothes that are never actually worn but remain in the suitcase until getting back home. Men. How many days are we on holiday for? Work out this number using a pencil and the same piece of A4 that has been used by your partner for her list. And then take the same amount of pants, socks and t-shirts. Also, a pair of jeans in case a posh do suddenly presents itself, and a pair of shoes. Flip-flops can be bought for extortionate prices either at the airport 
or at one of those strange gift shops that sell them along with flags, postcards and hockey Harry Potter memorabilia. And I think we can uh, all identify with that. I still love that line about uh, wearing jeans in case a posh do presents itself. Fantastic. Musings of a muddled mind uh, from Jamie Mackay. And there'll be more from Jamie next month. The Reading Rooms, 101 books to read before you die. This is Claire Kinton, author of Dead Game. And the book that I would highly recommend is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I just adore the character's Kathy and Heathcliff, the romance of the story, the wildness of it, the rawness of it, the upliftment at the end where Kathy and Heathcliff reunite on the moors in the afterlife. And I could recite pieces from it, but I won't go on. It's a book that everybody should read to know that love will cross eternity to find itself again. Our thanks to Claire Kinton, who we interviewed on last month's programme about her debut novel, Dead Game, which is available to hear on last month's podcast. Now, while Claire was in the studio, we recorded the explosive opening chapter of her book, and I think this will explain why it's selling so well. So here's Claire Kinton reading from Dead Game. Dead Game, 2003, Chapter 1, Flying Evokes Boredom and Terror. Archie Fletcher's eyes flicked open. The contents of his stomach shot into his mouth as the plane delved downwards, the sudden descent into Kuwait putting an immediate end to his dreaming. Bring Me to Life, Events' new number one single screeched in his ears. He ripped out his headphones, clutched his armrests firmly and swallowed hard. The commotion in the cabin was quite different from the music that lingered in his head. Automatically he clutched for his St Christopher, muttering under his breath, He was never too sure whom he was praying to or if it would help. It just seemed the thing to do when hauling oneself through the air at 800 miles per hour in a giant hollow hunk of metal headed for a war zone. The field support, 2nd Company Remy, were finding it difficult to remain calm. It was an unnerving flight for the hardiest of flyers. Archie forced himself to relax. Well rested after his sleep, his natural appetite for adventure overcoming his fear, He grinned hard at the chiselled soldier beside him. James mustered a nervous smile. Peering out of the small aeroplane window, Archie could see the rumbling storm the pilot was attempting to avoid. Street lightning lit up dense black cloud that threatened to engulf them. It was a losing battle. Quick as thought, they were in the thick of it. Thunder exploded around the aircraft, blotting out the sounds of shrieking engines. Lightning struck them over and over again. To those inside, it felt as though the supreme hand of God had taken hold of the plane and was shaking it to see what was inside. Overhead speakers crackled into life. This is your captain. We've lost an engine. Prepare for an emergency landing. Archie sucked in a short breath and turned to look at James. This time, neither man smiled. Their eyes locked momentarily, verifying each other's fear then both leaned forward to stare out of the window at the majesty of the merciless storm. The lights in the cabin flickered as lightning struck again and again and again, each time throwing into stark relief a blur of tense white faces. I'm sorry, the panic-stricken voice of the captain shouted through the tannoy. We've lost power. We're losing fuel. Ready a life jacket under your seat. Adopt brace position. We've overshot our landing. We're headed out into the Persian Gulf. When we hit, it's... He was cut off. The cabin plunged into darkness. 
The plane jerked suddenly downwards. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now time for a quick poem from one of the stars of this year's Reading Room Live. This is Paul Etang with Bad News. It's eye-popping stuff. There's tongues hanging out. Hands deep in pockets and blood rushing south. Do you like violence? Do you like pain? Do you like needles that puncture the vein? Do you like war? Kids with no legs. Hands that are tied and bags over heads. Do you like stories of killers and kings sift through the debris for dangerous things? Or dolls that talk and move on their own with eyes made from stars and heads made from stone? Go, tell your family. Run, tell your friends. Summon the people, there's news of the end. If you so choose, walk with the dead. The jerk of the string, the nod of the head. If you so choose, please cut the cord. Just stay away and say that you're bored. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Thebookpond.com is an independent online selling service for UK university students and graduates. And I'm very pleased to say that joining us in the studio now is the director, let's say, uh, Joanne Brady. And uh, hello, welcome to The Reading Room. Hello. Hello. Uh, Okay, now, so to get us started, what is The Book Pond? It's basically what you said. It's uh, an online website where you can list your academic textbooks that you've got for sale. And then if somebody stumbles across them and needs that book, they get in contact with you directly and you sell them the book. That's okay. it. Simple as that, really. Okay. And it is, I mean, the, the, the beauty of it, I think, is its simplicity. But let, let's let's dig a let's scratch the surface a little. Let's pretend uh, maybe I was on Dragon's Den and they say, where was the idea? Where was the inspiration from this? The inspiration was I was at university myself and textbooks are just so expensive. Yeah. But when I was buying them at the bookshop and I thought, this is mad. There must be somebody who's got this book already, you know, a year, maybe two years above me who doesn't need it anymore, sat on the shelf doing nothing. What do they do with that book? And, of course, the option is you either send it back to the bookshop and you get next to nothing for it, or you sell it online and you end up paying fees to, you know, the website. And you end up having to take it to the post office as well and pay a package in person. I just thought, this is just bonkers, really, the amount of money that people must be losing through doing this. Yeah. And I thought, it must be a simple way of finding that person who needs to sell that book okay. to you, really. So how's it, how's it going? You've you obviously had some success with it. Yeah, I mean, it's took a couple of years sort of to get to this stage, really. We've had a lot of users sign up to it across the UK, and uh, in July we were on BBC Click, and from then it's just gone a bit mad, really. I was going to ask you about that, because, I mean, that's, that's really exciting. I, I know loads of people love that, that programme. Oh, it's, yeah. It's kind of hangover TV, I think, for yeah, a lot of people, definitely. isn't it? <laughs> replacing <laughs> Hollyoaks. Um, but yeah, how did that come about? Well, I just sent them a tweet. Simple as that. Like everybody says, wow, you know, what did, what did you do? Who do you know? And the production crew, that's what sort of happened. And how many times did you have to ring them and write to them? And, and I didn't. I sent them a tweet and just said, basically, this is our site, have a look. And within six, eight weeks, it was on, on the BBC. Wow. And so I didn't even know about it myself. What I did is on, on the Friday, I'd actually been up to Durham for my own graduation ceremony. Come back, and I was just having a look on Google Analytics, like you do, looking at the website, thinking, well, I've, I've got a lot of traffic today. That's, that's a bit strange. You know, I, I get a fair bit, but this was mad. And I was getting a lot of hits off the BBC website. So I rang my brother-in-law, because he's well into you know, websites and promoting them and things. And I said, I'm on the BBC Click website. I said, I don't know how I've got on, but I'm on. And he said, well, are you not on the programme tomorrow then, on Saturday? And I said, I've no idea. So of course, I got up excitedly at eight yeah. in the morning <laughs> on Saturday morning and turned to click on. And there we were, and it was just really strange. And so I had a lot of interest since, and it's yeah. been going really well. Okay, so your site 
a, a superb site uh, and the design again is very very simplistic and that, that, that appeals to me that's what, that's what I want it's what users want isn't it yeah um, so are there, are there any sort of further developments you can you can see uh, what what would, might the next step be? Well, the next step for us really is just to, is to keep building the users and so and get as many people to use it as possible. But what we're going to be doing in the autumn is separating it into different homepages. So you get a different page for Lincoln, you get a different page of Hull, you get a different page of Manchester. And it'll tell you a little bit about the university. Um, so that you don't have to log in every time. And what I'm hoping is that people who go to University of Lincoln or Hull or Manchester will help me sort of create a bit of content really for the site and tell me a little bit about the university place where they live and building it more sort of community based really mm. yeah it's certainly got that feel and uh, you know it's uh, always focused on keeping the cost down as well and mm-hmm. uh, and obviously you know it's uh, uh, meeting people rather than using that postage and package absolutely it's all about local really and keeping that value of what you've spent on that book within sort of the local community yeah, and also what I picked up on is there's a very, a very good focus on the safety of, obviously, when you're meeting strangers, you know, you're bringing yeah. strangers together. Um, and there, there's some quite strict sort of do's and don'ts on there, aren't there? Yeah, it's common sense. I mean, you know that when you go and meet somebody online, you wouldn't meet them in a dark place. It's just the same, you would apply the same common sense that you would do meeting anybody, whether it's a classified ad in a paper, really, or meeting somebody off Facebook. Uh, I mean, looking at looking at the book pond uh, as, a, as a, let's say, a business, I've, I've got I've really got my dragon's den head on today. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that new dragon. I think she's brilliant. Um, but, oh, is that the scary looking one yeah, with the dark yeah. hair? Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, it. she's like a pantomime dame. Yeah. She, she's wonderful. She's perfect for the program. <laughs> it really giving it a new boost, and she makes Deborah Meaden look human. So, <laughs> but looking at it, you know, taking these costs out and things like mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, from the postage and packaging, taking a commission off. Yeah. What's in it for you? Where where where, do, where does your you know where do your shillings come from? My shillings at the moment come from my pocket. Basically, um, I've paid for everything that that site's about. I've got somebody to help me do it for free. And we, we long term, it's going to be paid for by advertising um, at no cost to the student, really. I see. So, so I mean, I mean the, the aim is to keep it as simple as possible so that we're not incurring those costs that, you know, like auction sites incur. Because obviously, if you do on- online payments and things like that, and you, you process a payment through our site, that's adding to our cost. And then you have to take a commission. Whereas we're saying, you know, we, you don't have to process a payment for our site. Therefore, it's not costing us anything to do. You know, therefore, we can keep it free for as long as possible. Yeah, yeah, we, we, it seems it comes from the right place. It's, Absolutely. You know, it's, you know it's, it's not the student themselves are ever going to have to pay to use it. And, and we, we will say as well that if it ever gets to the stage where we're having to charge students to use it, we probably will we'll just discontinue it because I just don't agree with that at all. I think that, you know, it should be a free resource. And it, while it can be a free resource, it will be. I see. And uh, it's not just for academic books either, is it? I mean, you know, it seems that there are other uh, books certainly on there. Oh, yeah, there's other books on there. There's a lot of novels on there, but that'll be because somebody's actually needing that for their English literature course or something like that. So there are anything that you need on there book-wise for university, academic textbooks or literature books will be on there. Great stuff. Okay, so getting in contact, obviously, thebookpond.com. Yes. Uh, you can uh, find it via that. You can find uh, you can search on Facebook as Facebook, well. Facebook, yeah, The Book Pond on oh. Facebook. Okie dokie. And I've, we've got a Twitter feed as well. At The Book Pond. At The Book Pond, yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Richard Herring, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Thank you for listening to the podcast of The Reading Room. If you like what you heard, you can go to our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Uh, click on the links there for vote, and you can vote for us in the European Podcast Awards. We are up against uh, Radio 4 and Capital FM and The Guardian, and uh, we'd really like your help on this one. Uh, so just take a couple of seconds to click on it if you'd be so kind.
Next month, uh, the Reading Room Book Group will be reviewing Flick by Abigail Tartellin. We'll also be interviewing the film critic Mark Kermode about his new book, The Good, The Bad and The Multiplex, and also we'll hopefully be uh, hooking up with the author Tony Hawkes. And we'll also be interviewing self-published author Marie Harbin about her science fantasy book, 7.8. So we'll be live on Siren FM at 10 o'clock on Sunday, the 2nd of October. And the podcast will be available shortly after that. We'll see you next month. 